Last week, as we started our Christmas season, we started by looking at our need for a Savior. Uh, We are all sinners, every single one of us, and we all desperately need a Savior. And God, through His Word, has promised over and over to His people that He was sending someone. Uh, And then after Jesus came, we have promises that He's coming again. And so today I want us to look at one of those promises, uh, the promise of the Savior that was to come. And that's the title of our sermon, The Promise of a Savior. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah 9. And we're going to look at one of the familiar passages probably for many of us around the Christmas season which is a promise of the Savior to come. And so Isaiah chapter 9, I'm going to read the first seven verses and then pray for us. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, and the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank You for the many promises that You've given to Your people. We thank You for the promise that we see today. I pray that You will uh, help us believe it, help us live lives changed because of it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. It was hard to determine how to, how to approach this text on the promise of a Savior when there are so many promises. Uh, God didn't wait for the people to get their act together after the fall to finally say, okay, we'll, I'll send someone to make it right. He actually told Adam and Eve in the garden, He let them know then that there was going to be a Savior. And throughout His people's history, He continued to remind them, I'm going to send someone. And so as I was kind of preparing for this, 
uh, was trying to figure out how do we approach this when there's so many promises. Isaiah 9 is such a beautiful passage for us, and it reveals so much to us about the Savior uh, that I'd settled in on this passage. So we're going to look at three things about our Savior from this text. The first thing that we see here is the Savior will bring restoration. The Savior will bring restoration. We're looking at, uh, in this in these first three verses, uh, words that talk about restoration and renewal, things being made new. And so... Isaiah 9, 1 through 3, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. And so God, in in this first verse of Isaiah 9, through the prophet of Isaiah, tells His people, it's not always going to be this way. It's not always going to feel like this. It's not always going to stay like this. I will reverse it all. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former. At the end of Isaiah 8, it's actually talking about the people choosing darkness. The people in their own sin and rebellion against God choosing to walk darkness in darkness, but God promises, even though the people are choosing rebellion, even though the people are choosing to walk away from God, God promises it's not always going to be like this. One day, I'm going to make things right again. Now, the the places that He references, that He says there's going to be honor in these lands... Uh, are places in the northern parts of the kingdom. They're the places where when the enemies invaded the land, they invaded from the north. They're the ones that faced the enemies from the beginning. They're the ones that felt the oppression the most. They're the ones that felt the, uh, the attacks more often from the enemies. And he says, this land that is the people walk around in darkness, this land where the people feel constantly oppressed by the enemy, one day I'm going to be bring honor to this land. This land that probably at times just feels like they've been just ignored by God, that maybe God doesn't care about them anymore. One day there's going to be a special honor that comes to that land. And one of those regions that he mentions is Galilee of the nations. If you remember, as we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke, last year we were walking through uh, the Gospel of Luke, Jesus' ministry, do you remember where it started? It started in Galilee. That was a fulfillment of the promise. The land that's been so oppressed. The land that... 
the people seem to be walking around in darkness because of the constant threat and constant oppression of people, one day there's going to be light shining into that darkness. Jesus started His ministry there as a fulfillment of that promise. That region that got to experience the first fruits, the first look at Jesus and His ministry, were receiving blessing and honor. And so verse 2, the prophet goes on to say that the Savior is going to bring light into the darkness. The people are going to see a great light. Light was a term that was often associated with Jesus and His ministry. Light was a term that was often associated with God and His work in this world. Jesus Himself referred to himself as the light of the world. And so the prophet says, when, when God sends the Savior, there's going to be a new light shining in the darkness. In this land that seems so distressed, in this land that's so broken, in this land that's helpless, there's going to be a new light shining in the darkness. Charles Spurgeon suffered greatly from depression, uh, sometimes crippling depression in his life and in his ministry. And I read an account uh, one time talking about uh, early on in his life, feeling, uh, especially feeling the oppressive weight of that uh, at night as he laid in his bed trying to sleep and feeling almost as if the presence of evil itself was sitting on his chest while he tried to sleep and him laying there longing for the light, longing for the sunshine again to try to dispel this feeling that he had. Some of you may have walked through periods like that. Some of you may be walking through a period like that now, but even without suffering from depression and having depression, we walk through dark periods, every one of us. This is a broken world, and there are stretches in our life where it seems like one thing after another. And the prophet says, I'm going to send light. Right? In this oppressive land, in this land that seems so dark and broken, I'm going to send a Savior that's going to be a light in this world. And then in verse 3, uh, the prophet speaks to God, actually. Uh, he turns this uh, and says, God, you've done this for your people. You have enlarged the nation. You have increased the joy of the people. They have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at the harvest time uh, and as they rejoice when dividing the spoils. And so here with the idea of restoration and renewal, the people who've been so oppressed by darkness are going to now be a people of rejoicing, a people of joy because of what God has done for them. And he speaks of it as it's already accomplished. Remember, he's giving a prophecy of the Savior to come. 
But here he's speaking as it's already accomplished. And that the language use in the original language, that's the, the tense that is used when it's speaking of something that God has promised to do. And since God has promised to do it, His people can look at it and speak of it as it's already accomplished because there's no way that God is not going to fulfill that promise. And so he uses these two images and says, think about the harvest season. Think about, like, for an agricultural society, they would have completely understood this. Many of us may be more removed from agriculture, uh, but the harvest season was a time of rejoicing. And if you were a, a, a child of God, rejoicing in God for His provision for you, Think of all the months of hard labor, all the toil, all the praying for rain, all the praying against drought, all the praying against the insects that could destroy it all, and finally after months and months being able to receive the crops. The harvest was a time to rejoice. God, You've cared for us again. You've provided for us again. Thank You for Your provision. And then using a military image says you've caused your people to rejoice like if they had a victory in battle. If they've been victorious and have now get to march through the fields and march through the towns of the enemy and, and receive the spoils of war, pick up the things that were left over by their enemies that have been destroyed before them. It's like you're going to do that. And here he speaks of it as you already have done that because you've promised to send someone to make all of this right. God promised a Savior would bring about restoration. He would bring about renewal for His people. He would put things back the way that they should have been all the way back from the fall when sin entered into the world. And that starts with us as followers of Christ, that renewal, that restoration, but that eventually will come to all of creation. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, we see this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Renewal. If we are in Christ, we are a new creation. He has renewed us. He has restored us. He has made us new. And one day, He's going to restore all of creation. All of the brokenness in this world. And so we see this promise in Revelation 21, verse 5 and 6. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. I am making everything new. I'm bringing about renewal. I'm bringing about restoration. No more sin no more sorrow, no more pain and grief. He's going to restore all things. No more corruption from the fall. No more looking around at the brokenness in our own bodies and in this world. 
everything will be made new when our Savior comes again. Doesn't the promise that it's not always going to be this way comfort you? It should. It should be a great comfort to us to know that God loves us so much. A people who are a rebellious people that He says, I'm not going to let it stay like this. I'm not going to let it feel like this always. I'm going to restore all things. So as you feel burdened by the heartaches, as you feel oppressed by it all, as the world seems incredibly dark at times, remember a light has come into the darkness. God has promised to send a Savior for His people and He kept that promise when He sent Jesus. And one day, Christ is coming again. One day, Jesus will return for us. And He's going to make everything new again. All of this brokenness that we walk around with is going to be destroyed. So take comfort, church. The Savior will bring about restoration. And the second point from our text in Isaiah is this. The Savior will destroy oppression. The Savior will destroy oppression. Verses 4 and 5. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the staff of their oppressor just as you did on the day of Midian for every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of, of war will be burned up as fuel for the fire. So, verse 4, the people who faced the constant invasion, right? The, the people in the northern kingdom who felt the invasion first and more often the people who were constantly being oppressed by others, the people who were going to face exile because of their own sins, they're told through the prophet there's going to be a day that this oppression is all over. There's going to be a day that everything that oppresses you is going to be destroyed. And so again, the prophet's speaking to God as if it's already been done, because God is promising to do it. He says, God, You have shattered their oppressive yoke. You've destroyed the things that people use to oppress Your people. And then he references the battle of Midian. Midian is the, the battle that Gideon was a part of. Many of you probably remember that story. God sent His people into battle, but He told Gideon, you have too many soldiers. And He gets Gideon's army down to 300 men and sends them into battle. And when they go into battle against this massive force of thousands of thousands of people against 300 men, they follow the instructions of what they're supposed to do. And when they do that, God works a miracle. God destroys the oppressor. And the men just had to stand there and watch it happen. They didn't have to lift a finger to fight. 
God destroyed the oppressor. He did it on His own. It wasn't dependent upon His people being good enough or strong enough. God was the one that was stepping in for His people to destroy the enemy. They stood and watched as He did it. The people turned into chaos that they were up against and destroyed themselves while God's people watched. And so he references that here in Isaiah. He's like, you're going to end oppressor. You're going to end oppression over your people just like you did at that battle. And then in verse 5, he says, even the, the things of war, we're not going to need anymore. The trampling boots of war that soldiers would strap on to march in, that was one of, especially the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the ones that invaded against the, uh, the nation of Israel. And they were known for these, uh, these boots of war. And he was like, there's going to be a day with those, when those boots of war are going to be thrown into the fire. There's going to be a day where the, the garments of war that your enemies have rolled in blood before they got to you to terrify you, there's going to be a day that those are just burned up. Because your oppressor won't be able to oppress you anymore. And you're not going to need those things either. There will be no more war one day because all oppression is going to be destroyed. Now the prophet is speaking specifically to the nation about a time where their oppression and oppressors will no longer be able to harm them. There would be a time that their oppressors would be destroyed. That's why the people were looking for their Messiah to be a political leader who would also be a military leader. They expected, well, God's been promising that someone's coming and He's going to destroy the oppressive forces that we face. And so the Messiah must be this great political and military leader that's going to wipe out whoever's oppressing us. And there's going to be a day that that happens for His, his nation. But Jesus' work goes far beyond that. Not just for the nation of Israel, but for all of the followers of Christ, all of the people of faith, every one of God's children. Jesus came to crush our greatest enemies, Satan, sin, death, all will be destroyed because of Jesus. And we can actually speak of it as if it has already happened because God has promised to do it. This is one of those promises early on. This is the promise from the garden, right after Adam and Eve have chosen to sin. God speaks a curse to the serpent who Satan used to, uh, to convince Eve to disobey God. Genesis 3.15, I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. God promises then one day, there's going to be a descendant of Eve. One day, there's going to be a child of the woman that's going to come. And yeah, you're going to harm him. You'll bruise his heel. But he is going to crush your head. It's going to be over one day. The oppression is going to be over. You will not be able to harm 
my people anymore. And in Revelation 20, we see the destruction of Satan finally coming to pass that God had promised, I'm going to destroy the oppressor. He won't harm you anymore. And then, in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 54 to 57, another promise, another hope that the oppression that we face, oppression because of our own actions, is going to be destroyed one day. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed in immort- with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, sin, the power of sin, death itself will be destroyed through Jesus Christ. For those of us who are in Jesus, we will have victory over the oppressors. And it won't be because we've been good enough. It won't be because we were strong enough. It'll be because our Savior. It'll be because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. In Christ, we will have victory over all these things. He has sealed the victory. The Savior that God sent came to destroy oppression that we were under. And lastly, back in Isaiah, the third point, the Savior will reign perfectly for eternity. The Savior will reign perfectly for eternity. Verse 6 and 7, For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. All of this is going to come about. The end of oppression, the restoration and renewal, all of this is going to come about because a child will be born. There's going to be a child coming, is what the prophet says, about 700 years before Jesus is born. A text that scholars point out describes both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. A child will be born. This is a human child is coming, but a son will be given to us. And scholars argue that's the, uh, the reminder that this is God's son. This isn't just a child. This is God's Son. God's Son's going to be given to us, for us. A child will be born. 
that Son of God who comes is going to be tasked to rule, to set things right, to make things the way that they should be, the way that God had intended them to be. I love the way Ray Ortland Jr. describes this. God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to the Assyrians and to all the big shots in the world that He can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answer to all the bullies swaggering through history is not to become a bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. And so, Isaiah 6 says, He is going to rule the government. The rule of the government is going to be on His shoulders. He's going to be in charge. And so what is that rule going to look like? Well, the names given in verse 6 help us see what His rule will be like. And verse 7 then goes on to describe it even more. So the names given to the child that's coming, the one that's been promised, the one that's going to fix and restore all things, our wonderful Counselor. It's going to have wisdom beyond any other human being that He will be able to lead from and that He will be able to give His people as He leads them. Mighty God. He's going to rule with the power of God. We have people in this world who rule and they have armies, they have other people that are working to try to bring about what they want to accomplish. Sometimes they can accomplish those things, sometimes they can't. But when Christ rules, He's going to rule with the power of God. And so whatever it is that He wants to accomplish, it will be accomplished. Eternal Father. Now this isn't saying God the Father saying this Son who comes will be called Eternal Father, saying that He's going to lead His people like a loving Father cares for His children. A loving Father who supports, encourages, builds up, takes care of. He's going to lead His nation like a loving Father and Prince of Peace. He will rule, his rule will be one of peace. There will be no more war. We've already looked at that. That the articles of war can be destroyed because we don't need them anymore. But there will be peace in the land because he is the prince of peace. He will maintain peace as he rules. And then verse 7 goes on to say that this kingdom where Christ comes to rule, this kingdom where the promised Savior comes in and rules, He's going to rule, it's going to grow, it's going to be an expanding kingdom. It will have no end. It's going to be prosperous. And the ruler is going to rule on David's throne. And his rule will last for an eternity. It will never come to an end. On and on throughout the remainder of history, He's going to rule perfectly with all of this as what is His guiding 
which is guiding him through this. And it's going to be a time of justice. It's going to be a time of righteousness because of this child coming. And verse 7 ends with the answer to how do we know this is going to happen? Is this dependent upon us? Is this dependent upon if we get the equation right, if we do the right things, is that how we can know that we're going to finally be given someone that's going to fix all of this brokenness? No. The zeal of the Lord of armies is going to accomplish this. This is going to happen because God has determined, I am going to set things right, even though my people still rebel. Even though my people still turn from me, even though they don't trust me all the time, I'm going to accomplish this. I will send the Savior to set things back to the way they should have been. And so we can trust that promise because God is going to pursue it until it happens. And it will last for an eternity. Now in 2 Samuel Uh, God gave the promise to David. I'm going to send someone from your line. There's going to be a, a child that comes as a descendant of you and one day I will give him your throne and he will reign for an eternity. Gabriel, when he's speaking to young Mary and explaining to her, I know you don't understand this, but God's doing a miracle inside of you. And even though you haven't been married, and even though you haven't been with a man, God is creating life in you. And that child is the promised one. That child that you're going to bring into this world and you're going to raise, He's the one that God told your people so long ago is going to be given David's throne and He's going to be able to rule forever and it's going to be perfect and it's going to be beautiful That's coming through your child. And then in Revelation 11, there are multiple references to this, but Revelation 11 and verse 15, we see this, "...the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever." It's going to last for an eternity. Imagine an eternity with a perfect ruler. Perfect leadership. No more war. No more strife. Perfect leadership. We long for good leadership in our world. Every one of us, if you're an American citizen that's paid any attention to politics, has cared about who our leadership is, every one of us has felt at some point in time this longing for a different leader because we've seen leadership switch back and forth. So wherever you fall on the political spectrum, you've looked at leadership at some point in time in your life and thought, I hope one day we have a good leader. I hope one day we have someone different. One day, Jesus Christ is coming again. And He's going to rule perfectly in this world. With wise counsel. With the power of God. With fatherly love. Peace and justice and righteousness. 
This is the perfect and eternal reign of Jesus. And so, let's not be a people so consumed with the busyness of our lives, and especially the busyness of this season, that we forget to long for the day when Jesus comes back and begins His rule, His perfect rule, that's going to last for an eternity where all this brokenness will be ended. Let's long for that because He's going to make things right again. God promised to send a Savior and He kept that promise when He sent Jesus almost 2,000 years ago. Jesus came to bring about restoration. He came to end oppression. And He came to reign perfectly over His people. And so if you need a Savior and you don't have Him, know that God has given Him to you. A child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. God has given us a Savior when He sent His Son Jesus for us. And all you have to do is believe in Him and you will receive all of these things. And so if you want to know more about that, please schedule a time to talk to me. I would love to share more about what Jesus has done for you so that you could receive the blessings of salvation from Him. Church, days can still fill dark and oppressive. You all know that. Let's remember that we have a promise-keeping God. Amen? We have a promise-keeping God. He sent Jesus to be the Savior that we needed. He kept His promise. And one day, Jesus is coming back and He's going to make all things new. We can have hope because of the promise of God. We have hope because our Savior Jesus came and because our Savior Jesus is coming again. Let's pray. Father, You are so good and faithful. Thank You for sending a Savior. Thank You for keeping Your promise, even though Your people have continued to be faithless, have continued to be a rebellious people. You kept Your promise to send Jesus, and we can hold on to the fact that He's coming again for us. Help us believe, and help our lives be changed. Help us be a people of hope, a people of faith, holding on to the good news of this promise. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.